Hi, hello, this is the eighth demonstration of the broadcast system. Apple still haven't got to us and frankly, I'm in a mood to be kind to people dealing with a sheer enormous influx of work that they didn't expect and they're probably shorter staff than usual. God knows the number of podcasts that they are currently having to validate. It must be gruesome. Uh, a slight warning, by the way, it looks like our live broadcast next week on Tuesday, if we can do it live, I think we can, we might have to be via Facebook, it might be through Zoom, it depends on numbers. Anyway, I'll work it out over the weekend. First up tonight, we have a rhetorical question, which we will try to answer later on. That was predictably from Frankenstein and the Sharks of Doom, which I always love the songs from and I have listened to without cease this week, uh, as you can tell. And now we take ourselves back to Kilburn in the late summer of 2010. Amy Luck is a freelance journalist who rents a flat on Hempstall Road just over the road uh, from here with her maybe soon-to-be ex-best friend Moira Flecker, or maybe already ex-best friend. It's pretty hard to tell. There's a very odd atmosphere in that house, and it's all because of sex blogging. I mean, it's like we're back in 2005, is what I said in 2010. Moira is flighty and outgoing. Amy is reliable and reserved. Moira is glib. Amy is earnest. Moira finds it easy to make friends. Amy assumes her friends will suddenly desert her. There is no particularly striking reason for them to be friends with each other at all, let alone best friends, which Amy understands better than Moira because Amy is the kind of person who understands things, and Moira really is not. Ultimately, there's no more to it than that they lived next door to each other in their first year at university. Moira would call this an amazing coincidence uh, that 
they found each other, but Amy knows it's merely that they made each other, they made their adult selves in each other's presence. Uh, merely is the word Amy uses to describe this momentous process, and thereby hangs a psychological tale in itself. They are an odd couple, like all couples. And, and when they came to London about seven years ago, six, seven years ago, they moved into a terrible flat above the first Alex Place fish and chip shop when it was still on this side of the high road, before it moved over the other side into Camden, this side, Brent, that side, Camden. Uh, this is border country, people. Don't worry, this isn't going to be a tale about the outlaw badlands. But, you know, live Brent or die. Uh, they moved to London. Uh, Amy got a job at The Guardian and Moira found her way into a soul-destroying, pile-em-high, sell-em-cheap telly company called Frogspawn Productions. Look, I was being glib when I called Moira glib. She is a good person. She's clever and she's kind. She loves the ballet. What, what I mean, I suppose, is that Moira does not particularly interrogate her own passions or positions. And this makes her suggestible. And she spent her days in a reality TV environment where one, pursuit of fame, and two, the public, dis the public disclosure of things once seen as private, were seen as absolute moral goods. And from within this environment, Moira noticed that a few unremarkable seeming women were getting rich and famous blogging about their sex lives. And Moira thought, why not do that? Amy told her. But Moira decided to ignore her. Amy is, after all, a little bit prudish. So long as Moira was being honest, what harm could there be? Didn't seem like a problem. Moira had missed the boat and her readership never really touched a hundred friends and a few dozen others who like her shtick and engaging but not particularly original dissection of disastrous dates, always anonymously, of course, and fumbling drunken encounters. But then came the celeb, that's what she called him on the blog, pretty derivative way of describing him. And he was famous and she was excited. And then he turned out to be creepy and weird. And this made for a hilarious, disappointed blog post. It was really very funny. And she enjoyed the feedback so much that she couldn't resist going on a second date with him. And it was funny slash awful again and ended in a horrible kiss overlooking the Thames. She knew she couldn't go on a third date. And she even wrote that on her blog. She said, horrified fascination and the certainty it will make a good anecdote are not good enough reasons for sleeping with someone. Uh, really? Uh, no, no, I, I agree with her. Anyway, whatever she wrote, the call of the anecdote is a strong one, especially for a sex blogger. And a few weeks later, she did sleep with him. And he was predictably the cliched epitome of a man who thinks he's great in bed, all cold overactive tongue and soft anti-sensitive hands and when you write a blog I did this for a while so I know it's incredibly easy to forget you're not just writing for your friends someone tipped off heat magazine a tiny amount of detective work exposed the celeb's name and uh, and you might remember the small kerfuffle that emerged it was a couple of years ago uh, and, and if you you don't, I'm not reminding you who he was. He was a quiz show laughing stock for a while, and Moira's post will always come up online when people search for his name, which is pretty grim, actually, to be honest. And Moira was horrified at what she'd done, and she stopped blogging about her sex life. 
Also, and I make no comment about this exactly, though I suppose that that in itself is an inexact comment, she found she sort of liked being sort of famous. And she got a gig as a sexological columnist for G2. Cut forward 18 months to the second half of last year. Moira was not particularly happy. For the first time in her life, she was having trouble attracting boys, which was ironic. But more than this was, uh, much more, psychically, was that for the first time in her life, she wasn't sure people liked her. And she was pretty sure this was because of her job. And it wasn't fair because she was no different as a person. Or that's what she told herself. And probably what she thought, too. Like I say, Moira is not someone who particularly understands herself. But the truth is, like I understand her or anything. But anyway, but the truth is. The truth. Anyway, we're just going to go with this. As a result of her work and the way people reacted to it and her reaction to that, she'd become defensive, basically. Coarsened is one way you could put it. The word her friends settled on, and this probably was the best way of describing it, was that she got brassy. And so about a year ago, August it was, so a bit more than a year ago, she sat next to some guy at dinner and told him what she did, and she saw his face, and she got her defence in first. She said she didn't have a boyfriend because men were frightened of strong women who were confident about sex, but the guy was having none of it. He said some men were like that, but those men weren't worth very much but plenty of men wouldn't touch with a barge pole someone they thought might write about their sex life in a national newspaper. And Moira knew this. But one of the advantages of being unreflective or disadvantages is that it lets you or helps you live in denial. But all it takes is someone poking a barge pole into the balloon of denial and it bursts. And from the other end of the table, Amy watched it burst even if no one else could see behind the brass. Uh, Sorry, these metaphors, I notice, are all over the place. No changing it now. Later, Moira said to Amy, it's true, isn't it? Why did you never say, you're my friend? And Amy felt terrible because she could have said it. And a tiny, fierce, unacknowledgeable part of the reason was uh, that a tiny, fierce, unacknowledgeable part of Amy had enjoyed Moira finding it hard for once without fully realising how hard Moira found it. Moira gave up her column. It wasn't the worst time for it, actually, since she was just about to produce her first show for Frogsport, a programme about the dating scene of a small island community. She buried herself in the work, and this January she set off for Mull, with a tiny crew. Her putative protagonist was a Glaswegian art dealer called Dominic Clunes, who'd inherited a croft on the island and he, and he was struggling to make a life there as a potter. He answered their original email by admitting that yes, he would like to meet someone and yeah, he was having real trouble. If he was set up on a blind date on Mull, it could only be with One of four people. Does she have dark hair? Yes. One eye or two. Oh, it's Morag and I don't fancy Morag. Or the other three. Dominic is shaggy, windblown, willfully and joyfully reclusive, skinning rabbits, digging up kale. Moira is 
high heels and style magazine and so 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 ho and you know, sushi and the Royal Opera House. In a nutshell, they fell in love. And the dating programme was recut into a reality rom-com about the making of a reality show in which the presenter falls in love with one of the subjects. And Frogspawn overjoyed because they own the ensuing rights and Richard Curtis is interested in a movie version. Anyway, Dominic proposed after three months of blissful, if geographically inconvenient love, and they set the civil ceremony for next week. But it was last Saturday that was set to be the main event a blessing and a big party at Moira's parents' house in Ham, which is which is in Wiltshire. I think there are lots of Hams, but Ham in Wiltshire is super nice. Visit Ham. Moira asked Amy to make a speech. This was an issue for Amy. One, because she doesn't like speaking in public. And two, because she thought the wedding was insane. Not definitely wrong, actually, but insane. The happy couple didn't know each other. They had no idea what lay the other side of being totally wrapped up in the relationship. Moira's father, an IT consultant called Charles, was so horrified that he immediately built himself a wine cellar. But Moira is Amy's friend and Moira was happy and you can't say no and Amy didn't. And she took her job very seriously. She's a serious person, like I say. She wrote a homily, and that is the right word. In it, she quoted the movie A Man for All Seasons, which is one of her favourite films. The doomed Sir Thomas More, in it, uh, in a very beautiful moment, explains to his daughter why he refuses to sign his name to a lie that will save his life. And what he says is, When a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his own hands, like water. And if he opens his fingers then, he needn't hope to find himself again. It is very beautiful and it's also very pitiless. And only a very small part of Amy thought she was not trying to send Dominic and Moira a message. When she came to the end of her homily, she saw the happy couple whispering and there was a little delay. And they nodded at each other and Moira stood up. I'm very sorry, she said. We're not ready for this. I'm very sorry to have got you here under false pretenses. You can still eat the food. It's all paid for. I'm so sorry, Dad. Charles was beaming with joy. I hope you have a lovely party. I'm very sorry. There was just a wildly uncomfortable silence. And then Charles could control himself no longer and shouted, well done, Amy, knew we could rely on you. And everyone had hysterics, except Amy, of course, who was mortified. Moira saw and said, don't be, that was brilliant. Thank you. And she asked Amy to deliver exactly the same speech this time next year when she and Dominic would do it for real. Moira basically was not yet ready to admit that she already knew this would never happen. The life choices that take one person to a croft on Mull and another to an Ikea-strewn flat in Kilburn are likely to signal a deep incompatibility, whatever the first thrill. So Moira really is grateful to Amy, I think, and Amy really is mortified, which isn't fact, which isn't, uh, which isn't helped by the fact that her friends have all started calling her the Destroyer. 
I, I'm one of them. I feel a bit guilty, but but it is funny. Uh, anyway, that, such as it is, is the news from Kilburn. Okay, almost done. Oh, just quickly, there will be a link in the programme notes to a friend of Tall Tales regular, John Finnamore, who's producing a webcast regularly, whose production values are, and it's no other word for it, but sky high. Uh, and now, to finish, we have the answer to our previous question. Come on, everybody, all aboard! Ahoy! There you go. That is us for this week. Have a good weekend. Uh, be lovely to each other and stay well. Tall tales out.